When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome back, Jim. Well, it's good to be back. I want to ask you about your vacation at the end of our show. But first, let's dive into the discussion. And it's a topic that involves tragedy, cruelty, and history. This is our second podcast to mark the year since Putin invaded Ukraine. In the last episode, we discussed some of the broader principles at stake in this growing struggle. They include national sovereignty and human rights, freedom of speech, democracy, and the rule of law. Today, Ukraine itself, why its resistance matters and is important to global history. A year ago, on February 24th, the full-scale invasion of Russia on the Ukraine, that was the end of a certain post-communist arc. That was the decisive end of what Francis Fukuyama had called the end of history. These are my friends and colleagues who are being slaughtered. That is first and foremost why the war is so personal for me. Our show is about fixes. Yeah, how to make the world a better place. How How do do we we fix it? it? How do we fix it? Jim, as you and I try and figure out what topics and guests to consider for how do we fix it, I think the number one rule is... Is the subject fresh? Or are we just going to repeat things that have already been talked to death elsewhere? Yeah, I I dread having people turn on our podcast and hearing the same conversation they could have heard on, you know, CNN this morning. So sometimes the freshness involves having a contrarian guest, someone who goes against the prevailing fashion on either the left or right. And it can also involve asking questions that you won't hear elsewhere. So with the anniversary of the Ukraine invasion, instead of talking about politics or the strategic issues surrounding the war, we're going to talk about the battlefield of ideas. What's at stake for Western democracy and where does Ukraine fit into our recent history? So we invited Marcy Shore back to the show. We first spoke with Marcy a year ago, right after Putin's invasion. Marcy is an associate professor of history at Yale University and author of The Ukrainian Night, An Intimate History of Revolution. She's a scholar of Eastern Europe in the post-Soviet era. And in this interview that you did, Richard, because I was not here when you made this recording, you got into some really 
I thought fascinating personal history. As a young child, she listened to her elderly relatives who had once been victims of czarist pogroms in Eastern Europe. As you'll hear, she speaks with great passion about Ukraine. And Richard, you spoke with Marcy on the day after the anniversary of the invasion. That was a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, I first asked Marcy, what's really changed in the year since we last spoke? The first thing I would say that has changed or that the Ukrainians have changed for us is that Ukraine has emerged as a subject, I think, and, and not an object in world consciousness. At the moment of the invasion, the overwhelming consensus is that the Russian army would take Kiev in three days. Those three days passed, you know, and now 366 days have passed and Kiev is standing. And for that reason, we are in a different world. This war is personal for you. You're Jewish and your great grandparents lived in what is now Ukraine. It wasn't then. They were Yiddish speakers who fled Russian czarist pogroms. Tell us more about the people you came from. So, in, in fact, um, this is really the first time, you know, in recent days that I've you know, spoken about my genealogy, you know, as opposed to my family life. I know from childhood. All of my great-grandparents came from an area that is called the Pale of Settlement that was in the Tsarist Empire. There was no independent Ukraine at the time, but my maternal grandmother's parents came from a small village very close to the Dnipro River, close to a city called Cherkasy, which is just south of, of Kiev today. Um, so it would be in present day Ukraine, you know, and they fled pogroms in a wave of pogroms that followed the First World War against Jews in particular between 1918 and 1921. They fled those pogroms. My great grandmother's fiance was very likely killed in front of her eyes by a pogromchik, you know, who was very likely Ukrainian to the extent that we're projecting modern day national categories. A pogromchik is what, a, a, a rioter or someone who was a follower of, or one of the people swept up in, in the pogrom who was attacking people? Yes, somebody who was carrying out attacks on Jews. Is that fact a reason why the war is, is personal for you, why it's you feel it so strongly? It's a very interesting question. And, you know, and I would say in the first place, no. I mean, perhaps to some extent, but the overwhelmingly, you know, stronger reason why the war is so personal for me is because, you know, in my adult life, I am a historian of Eastern Europe. I have spent my whole adult life hanging out in various places in Eastern Europe, you know, doing archival work there, working with students, working with colleagues, working with editors, working on translation projects. These are my friends and colleagues who are being slaughtered. That is first and foremost why the war is so personal for me. You've written that you abhor violence, 
but that you spent the past year pleading for lethal weapons to be sent urgently, quickly to Ukraine. You've said you've done that with with no ambivalence. Why not? That's been an extraordinary, surreal experience for me. I was a teenage peace activist. I remember running around in peace sign earrings. I, for a long time, considered myself a pacifist. I'm a terrible coward. I'm terrified of violence. You know, I've, I've never even let my kids have a squirt gun. When my, my son was nine and begged and pleaded for a Nerf gun for his ninth birthday, I said, absolutely not. Some people would say that's a little extreme. Some people would say that's extreme. I know. I mean, I, probably most American parents would let the kid have a Nerf gun, but I don't want anything even resembling guns in the house. And in some sense, this war has killed my natural pacifist inclinations because I see that there is no other way to stop people from being killed, to stop this bloodbath, than for it to end as quickly as possible with a Ukrainian victory and the defeat of Putin's regime. He will continue to bleed his through his entire population until he is defeated. From Putin's point of view, everyone is expendable, his own people, the Russians as well. And this is his enormous advantage in this war. When other people's lives mean nothing to you, you know, then you're unconstrained. And Putin is unconstrained because other people's lives mean nothing to him. You know, he can lose a thousand Russian soldiers a day. He can send them indefinitely like cannon fodder. He will just keep going. Many people have said that Ukrainians are fighting for us. Do you agree? And if so, why? That was my intuition from the first moments, and that remains my intuition now, that the Ukrainians are fighting for all of us. I don't think that Putin will stop. I, I think that regime has to be brought down. It has to be brought down decisively. You know, Ukraine has to win decisively. It's not just Ukraine. Um, its neighbor to the north, Belarus, is controlled by a Putin puppet regime. Uh, nearby Moldova is being threatened with being undermined by Russia. Uh, put these events into a broader regional context. A year ago, on February 24th, the full-scale invasion of Russia you know, on the Ukraine, that was the end of a certain post-communist arc. That was the decisive end of what Francis Fukuyama had called the end of history. And when he spoke in 1989, Francis Fukuyama, who's an American political scientist, about the end of history, what he meant then looking at the collapse of communism, the fall of the Iron Curtain, you know, and foreseeing the breakup of the Soviet Union, was that we now know that liberal democracy is the only viable alternative. And liberalism, democracy, and you know, free market capitalism, neoliberalism were all part of a kind of seamless whole. You know, and now that the bad alternative, the false alternative has fallen apart, and now that it's been exposed, now everybody will, will be on the right train. You know, and so there was a, a kind of hubris 
and an excessive amount of confidence that, okay, there are going to be some rough patches. Nobody really knows how you transition from a communist economy to a capitalist economy or how you create democratic culture overnight. But basically, there'll be some bumps in the road, but we all know where we're going. You know, and there were various moments that called that narrative into question. I mean, the first, I would say, you know, being the gruesome wars of ethnic cleansing in Yugoslavia, um, the the attack on the World Trade Center on September 11th, um, certainly the Maidan in 2014. The Maidan being? The Ukrainian Revolution of 2013 to 2014. There was a feeling that, you know, the end of history was coming to an end. But February 24th, 2022, I think was the decisive end of the end of history. You know, and now we are looking at what we didn't understand in the 1990s. The world has been surprised by the unity, by the determination of the Ukrainian people, their bravery. Are they just as firm and determined now as they were when we last spoke a year ago? My very strong impression is yes. I should first of all say that I have not been to Ukraine since the war began. My impressions are not based of walking around the streets, which is the kind of thing I would normally want to do. I am constantly in contact with my friends and colleagues there. They are just as determined. For them, there is no choice. The Ukrainians are fighting for their country, but it's not just about fighting for borders. The Russian invasion of Ukraine has been so gruesome and so brutal and has been carried out to such an overwhelming extent against civilians that there is a sense that it's simply impossible to lay down your arms because then you are just selling out your people and yourselves you know, to living in a concentration camp or to living in a torture chamber. Our show is called How Do We Fix It? We usually speak with guests about solutions. But in this case, I think what we're trying to do is get a better understanding of this conflict. What do you hope that people will understand that perhaps they don't now about this war? One of the things that I think is very important you know, that is often not understood outside of Ukraine, is that from the point of view of many people outside Ukraine, this is a fight about territory, about land, about borders. From the point of view of Ukrainians, it's not about land, it's about people. Giving up Kherson, you know, or, you know, giving up Bakhmut or give, giving up Erzul, it's not about that piece of earth. You know, it's about you are selling those people out to a reign of terror. And the kinds of occupation that the Russians have carried out have been so sadistic and so cruel. You know, we don't have a moral right to leave these people under this kind of occupation. You have 20-year-old Russian kids, I mean, young, young men who are going into these places and torturing by electric shock middle-aged women who could be their mother, you know, who are speaking to them in their own language. And you, you look at this and say, why? Why? Well, there's no reason for it. 
We're speaking with historian Marcy Shore, author of The Ukrainian Night, An Intimate History of Revolution. This is How Do We Fix It? I'm Jim Meggs. And I'm Richard Davies. Our website for comments and suggestions is howdowefixit.me. We'd like to hear from you. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Now, more of our interview. Do you think that many of us in the West thought that the internet would make it impossible for a tyrant like Putin to exist and to have such a hold over so many of his own people. Yes. In some sense, that's been our great disillusionment. And this goes back to something that was very central, especially in the 70s and 80s among dissidents in the Soviet Union and communist Eastern Europe, there was a deep belief in the power of truth, in the force of truth. You know, these were regimes that kept a tight control of information. People were risking their lives to get that information out. And there was a sense that if the truth could see the light of day, that would be the thing that would liberate people. You know, and in many ways, the great disillusionment of the present moment is that truth has not had that power that had been projected onto it. It has now been obscured by another side of the internet, which is just the ability to fill the public sphere with so much stuff, truth, non-truth, falsehood, half-falsehood, so that everything is all very muddled. Now, I still, I have still not completely given up. You know, there is, there is extraordinary work being done by teams of Ukrainian journalists in collaboration with lots of different partners, you know, from a bunch of different countries. Um, Natalia Gulmanyuk and Anne Applebaum and Peter Pomerantsev. And there's, there's a project called the Reckoning Project. Um, there's a project called Documenting Ukraine in which, you know, there is an attempt to go in to these places that are under occupation or have been recently liberated, you know, and do the kind of old fashioned fact checking on the ground, reporting, firsthand interviews, accumulation of evidence, and present that, you know, in video form, in print form, in podcast form, with the hope that the truth will still have meaning. And that eventually, and hopefully sooner rather than later, there will be war crimes trials. This brings up thoughts of Nuremberg and, and also the Truth Commission in South Africa, that this is sort of an ongoing attempt to document what is going on in close to real time. I think it is important to say that even in this post-truth world where belief in the power of truth has been eroded, 
This is the most well-documented war that I think has ever in, in history been carried out, both for technological reasons and because of the extraordinary hard work and devotion of large teams of people. We appear to be entering a new type of Cold War between America, Europe, Japan, and other nations on one side, and Russia and China on the other. Do you see it this way? I wrote recently that I thought that Joe Biden was the first Cold War president since Ronald Reagan. Do you agree? That's a good question. I don't see it that way at the moment. I have to say historians are only really good in the best case of talking about things that have already happened. You know, our ability to project forward and anticipate you know, is extremely limited. One of the reasons I see it that way less so is that there, what is really missing that was present then are these, these ideological blocks. I mean, even Stalin, you know, as, as cruel and sadistic and psychopathic as he was, there was an ideology, you know, that moved Soviet history. There was a belief in communism. There was a narrative that the present was only this you know, very ephemeral moment on the road to the future. In order to make an omelet, you've got to break some eggs and the ends will justify the means. And we are moving towards this utopian future where everyone will work according to his ability and receive according to his need. And these ideological blocks in the Cold War, you know, there was a real motivation by this sense of there was going to be a communist world and an anti-communist world. Um, I don't see that anymore. I mean, I understand really quite little about what's going on in China, but from my friends and colleagues who do work on China, my sense is that ideologies of these regimes, including certainly Putin's, there's no longer a grand narrative with a kind of eschatology and a utopian vision you know, to which people are committing. There is no longer a coherent narrative. I mean, in Soviet times, you know, both Stalinist and post-Stalinist, there was a story, there was an ideology, it was fictitious, but it had its own internal coherence. I mean, Hannah Arendt talks about how the great advantage that these kinds of modern totalitarian lies that these ideologies have over real empirical truth is that they can make the world much more logical than it would be otherwise because they can edit out inconsistency and make everything very consistent and go together in one story. That is no longer the case. Putin does not have one consistent story. On the contrary, the story changes every day. You know, in, in the beginning of the war, it was, you know, we need to, you know, protect the, the status and defend the Donetsk People's Republic and the Luhansk People's Republic, which are these kind of little enclaves of, that were started by Kremlin-instigated separatists in 2014. Then it was, there has been an American-sponsored Ukrainian Nazi regime that's taken power in Kiev and is holding our Russian-speaking brothers and sisters hostage. We have to go denazify Ukraine and liberate them. Then it was NATO was trickily and insidiously behind our backs 
plotting an attack that would obliterate you know it, the, all of Russia and therefore we had to preemptively attack then it was you know we are destined to be a great country and i am restoring the lands of peter the great you know then more recently they moved from nazism to satanism and said that ukraine has been taken over by satanist a satanist cabal and there's no attempt to create any kind of consistent story so their narrative has changed what about our narrative on in America and in the West, do you think that this war will result in stronger support for democracy, that there'll be a feeling that maybe there are some values and some institutions that are worth protecting? Oh, you know, Richard, my enormous hope is that when all of this is is over, we will all have something better for it. You know, that the story of what Ukraine has done, that it will shake the rest of the world into, you know, both an appreciation, you know, for freedom, for democracy, and also a sense of responsibility, you know, and a sense of individual agency. We were a hair's breadth from a fascist coup in this country you know, in, in January 2021. And if Trump had been president when Putin invaded Ukraine, I mean, it's not clear to me that Europe would still exist. America is, has not been such a strong democracy in recent years. Biden has come in and radically normalized a situation that had literally been a kind of hair's breadth from a fascist coup. And now I feel like Americans have largely repressed that moment and thought, oh, it never could have happened. It very nearly happened. But I'm hoping that this will shake all of us into a depreciation and also just a sense of responsibility. You know, Ukraine is a very different country now from what it was 30 years ago or from what it was 10 years ago. You, know, you have a generation in Ukraine you know, coming up now and represented by Zelensky, who feel themselves to be responsible. And that moment at the very beginning of the war, when the Americans offered to evacuate Zelensky, and he refused, that was a historic moment. And in philosophical terms, it was an existentialist moment of decision making. Because he made that decision to take responsibility, history changed, the world changed. Marcy Shore, thank you very much for speaking with us. Oh, thank you very much for having me on the, your show, Richard. Marcy Shore. And next, our recommendation. So, Jim, I know you want to talk about something that's visual. And I always thought when listening to NPR, for instance, when they had a photographer on or an artist, a visual artist, it was very difficult for them to describe in audio, what they were doing. So that's my challenge to you. Make it interesting. <laughs> well, I'm not going to try to describe it exactly, but I want to put in a word for the importance of the work that our war correspondents do, and especially focus on the photographer Lindsay Adario, who has been shooting in war zones and crisis 
areas around the world for about 20 years for National Geographic and the New York Times. She's covered Iran, Afghanistan, Syria. She was actually kidnapped with a couple of other journalists in Libya some years ago. And her stories from the front lines of these conflicts are really extraordinary, and they're told with a camera. Very early in the war, uh, she took a picture of a family that had just minutes before been killed by artillery in Irpin, near, uh, near Kiev, if I'm pronouncing that right. And it was an example of the indiscriminate and really illegal targeting of civilians by, by the Russian forces. She has a memoir called It's What I Do, but my recommendation is just go to the New York Times and just search her name, Lindsay Adario, and I have so much admiration for the journalists who do this, who really put their lives on the line in order to record this history as it happens. Your recommendation is to take a look at photographs of Lindsay Adario, a war photographer, and also the work of other war photographers. Thanks, Jim. Next, our conversation. So I've done the last two interviews solo with Jacob Michingama and, and now Marcy Shore. So I, I've, I've all, think, all kinds of things I could say about them, but I kind of want to give the floor to you and, and hear your reaction, not to my interview style, but to, to what they said. Well, first, thanks for handling both of these. First, I was a, away for a week, and then I, I had a, a, a brief bout of COVID for the second time, uh, which uh, I wasn't terribly sick, but I wasn't able to talk very well. So, uh, so I appreciate that. And I'm really pleased with both these episodes in that they, they give us some perspective on this conflict that is not just the, the day-by-day account of what's going on on the battlefield. I thought Jacob Michingama had a fascinating perspective on why even in the midst of a conflict like this, when it's so tempting to want to fight misinformation, disinformation, we should remain stalwart in protecting free speech and not succumb to the temptation to say, oh, we need to shut down Russian propaganda. We need to shut down you know, things that are defined as somehow in illegitimate forms of speech. The best way to counter that speech is with, with facts and with discussion. That's a difficult one to swallow. Uh, for a lot of people, for instance, saying, no, I'm sorry, we are going to allow disinformation or Putin's propaganda or lies to be part of the conversation, that may trouble a lot of people. But the alternative is not knowing Putin's strategy, not understanding uh, how he's managed to hoodwink his people and, and lie about the war. And that's something that I think that in Mar- the Marcy Shore interview really came through. She made what I thought was a, a really insightful point. The rationale for the war has changed month by month. And what Marcy said that I thought was really uh, important is we had this period in the 90s of this idea of the end of, of history This idea that with the fall of the Soviet Union, the Cold War was over, we weren't going to have these ideological battles, and people would hopefully kind of 
come together around essentially this liberal order. And that happened for a while. But now the, these conflicts are growing again, but they're not the same. They're not the same ideological conflicts. There is no ideological through line. There's no narrative. It's just power. And the underlying evil of of Putin's aims, I think, is that much more nakedly exposed when you realize it doesn't even have a fig leaf of claiming to be, you know, aiming towards some greater good. One more thing I'd like to say about the interview is in a moment of humility, Marcy said, as a historian, our ability to project forward is extremely limited. And I like that because I think that so often in media and among so-called thought leaders, we, we hear predictions of what's going to happen. And, and invariably, well, they have just as big a chance of being wrong as they could be right. <laughs> uh, the, our, we are all bad, I think, at predicting well, the future. And, you know, if we are going to uphold the kind of truth and free speech that, that I think that we advocate and they, 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 both of these episodes touch on, a little accountability is also good. And, and I think we need more of that in our, in our culture today. It's How Do We Fix It. I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. And thank you for joining us. Miranda Schaefer is our producer, and this is a production of Davies Content. We make podcasts for companies and nonprofits. Find out more at DaviesContent.com. Thanks for listening. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. 